بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم وسبحان الله العلي العظيم والحمد لله اللهم لك الحمد أنت نور السماوات والأرض ومن فيهن لك الحمد أنت قيم السماوات والأرض ومن فيهن لك الحمد أنت رب السماوات والأرض ومن فيهن لك الحمد أنت ملك أنت ملك السماوات والأرض ومن فيهن أنت الحق ووعدك الحق فاغفر لنا ما قدمنا وأخرنا وما أسررنا وما أعلنا لا إله إلا أنت ربي ورب العالمين والصلاة والسلام على المصطفى الأمين النبي الخاتم الصادق محمد عليه أفضل الصلاة والتسليم وعلى من اتبعه بإحسان إلى يوم الدين Today, inshallah, we want to continue developing the theme of our past. The theme of the past that Muslims are bound to take duty-bound, to take in this earthly life. When Allah, when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us in the Qur'an in many different forms but in a very explicit way when Allah tells us ثُمَّ جَعَلْنَاكَ عَلَى شَرِيعَةٍ مِنَ الْأَمْرِ فَاتَّبِعْهَا وَلَا تَتَّبِعْ Allah reminds us in the Quran that Allah has given us a sharia, a path, a way. And Allah then instructs us to follow it. Shari'atin min al-amr fattabi'aha, follow it, pursue it. Wala tattabi'a. Don't deviate from it. Don't follow other leads and other digressions that will take you away from the Sharia that Allah has set out for us. When Allah tells us that there is a path which is embodied by Islam, this invariably begs the question, what type of path 
what type of pass? is befitting and appropriate to the Lord of the heavens and, in the, and the earth, to the maker of the heavens and the earth. What type of path that is so worthy and so important that we eventually are going to be held to answer for and our very salvation or damnation depends on the way that we handled our journey through that path. There are many people who think that when Allah informs us that Allah has made a sharia for us and that Allah instructed us to follow that sharia and that Allah has in fact underscored the moral wrong of deviating from the Sharia. Because they have either weak souls, weak spirits, or because they have lazy intellects, or because their willpower is compromised and broken, they think that the path is something as simple as a group of positivistic laws. A group of positivistic laws. It is elementary within Sharia studies that laws that lead to practices is only half the process. Laws that lead to practice is only half the process. Because any practice decreed by law must have a purpose. If the positive practice doesn't lead to a purpose, then you have a fundamental breakdown of the relationship between the lawgiver, the law, and the law receiver. Put it differently, regardless of what special positive legal commandments we are following, what, whatever the specific haram or halal is, if you are not doing it with an understanding of why, how it fits in within the sharia of Allah, the path of Allah, then there is a fundamental and an important breakdown. Let me even go beyond this a little bit. I submit to you that the earliest Muslims and the pre-Muhammad Muslims, a.s. When Allah tells us that Allah gave us the same Sharia that He gave Nuh, that Allah gave Nuh, and that Allah gave Ibrahim, and that Allah gave Musa, and Allah gave Isa, intuitively, immediately, you, you know that 
Okay, well, there's a common theme to all the prophets. And the earliest Muslims understood that at a fundamental and basic level, Allah's message is a message of liberation and moral progress. Moral and ethical progress. It cannot be that Allah is simply talking about a bunch of positive commands like don't drink alcohol or do prayers or fast Ramadan without it having a larger purpose that is served by this command of following the path. Put it differently, if the earliest Muslims believed that what Allah is talking about are positive laws that command you to do your prayers, to fast your Ramadan, to refrain from consuming certain things, and that was it. And there's no nothing beyond that for humanity. Islam would have been a failed project a long time ago. When you read the Sirah, you find that the disciples of the Prophet were animated, energized, excited about a moral vision, not simply a system of practice. When we hear about companions of the Prophet going to Africa and traveling to Asia, and that wherever they traveled, they spread the message of Islam. If the message of Islam was purely and mechanically ritualistic, no one would have gotten excited about the Islamic message. The Islamic message would have been like a million other ritualistic creeds that came and were practiced in human society and that eventually evaporated. The moral vision, the moral vision that animated the companions and animated the tabi'een and that animated Muslims throughout was a moral vision of human dignity and human liberation summed up, summed up in La ilaha illallah. There is no God but God. When a human being, especially in the pre-modern world, was told rebel against the corrupt social structures the corrupt social structures in which there was an elite that controlled all the resources of the world. And this elite produced a religious practice in which a class, a holy class, served the idols that humanity was asked to worship. And this clerical, clerical class that serviced the idols would extract sacrifices from the poorest elements in society in order to appease the idols 
and enrich the aristocracy, that entire social structure was thoroughly abusive. So the Islamic liberation, when it came in and said to the rich and the poor, the black and the white, the free and the slave, your dignity stems from your maker. And you worship your maker and worship no one else. And that in the eyes of Allah, money doesn't belong to whoever controls it, but is actually Allah's money. And you are simply a deputy in charge of wealth on behalf of Allah. It was a revolutionary message. It was a thoroughly liberating message. The earliest Muslims believed that the Sharia that Allah has decreed was a Sharia that broke the yoke of submission off people's neck and empowered people to assert their humanity and to stand up tall in dignity against those who controlled and dominated and abused human beings. This was the excitement. This is precisely why This is precisely why when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala look at the remarkable language from the Quran that teaches us about our moral trajectory on this earth. When Allah tells us فَاسْتَقِمْ كَمَا أُمِرْتِ فَاسْتَقِمْ كَمَا أُمِرْتِ وَمَنْ تَابَ مَعَكَ وَلَا تَطْغَوْ إِنَّهُ بِمَا تَعْمَلُونَ بَصِيرٌ وَلَا تَرْكَنُوا إِلَى الَّذِينَ ظَلَمُوا فَتَمَسَّكُمُ النَّارِ وَمَا لَكُمْ مِنْ دُونِ اللَّهِ أَوْلِيَاءَ ثُمَّ لَا تُنْصَرُونَ وقم الصلاة وقم الصلاة طرفي النهار وذلفا من الليل إن الحسنات يذهبن السيئات ذلك ذكرى للذاكرين واصبر فإن الله لا يضيع أجر المحسنين فلولا كان من القرون من قبلكم أولي بقية ينهون عن الفساد في الأرض إلا قليلا ممن أنجينا منهم واتبع الذين ظلموا ما أترفوا فيه وكانوا مجرمين وما كان ربك ليهلك قرى بظلم وأهلها مصلحون It is as if Allah is drawing an entire philosophical imagery for us don't surrender. Don't become, don't allow yourself to be subjugated and dominated 
by the unjust and And because it is Allah that is speaking us to us, Allah knows that not surrendering to the unjust on the face of this earth, resisting submission, resisting degradation, is a very difficult task. And it requires moral courage to live a life in which you say, I cannot coexist with injustice. And I will not allow myself to be the servant, subservient or the servant of the unjust in society. It requires moral courage, and that is exactly why Allah then comes and tells us, you want strength, pray night and day. Because to get to the point that you fear only Allah, and you don't fear anyone but Allah, requires a praying soul, requires a soul with an intimate, close relationship to Allah to actually internalize that revolutionary idea that you should not fear other human beings, but you should only fear Allah. And then, right after that, Allah reminds us by usab, persistence, because the path is hard. Allah, the path of shara, is a difficult path. It's not difficult because you're required to do ritualistic acts. It's difficult because if you refuse to submit yourself to the ladina zalamu, to the unjust on this earth, many of the privileges of this world will be taken away from you, if not worse. Then, the remarkable reminder in Surah Hud. Allah tells us a cosmic law. A cosmic law. You want to know which societies succeed and which societies fail? Allah tells us the societies that have a sufficient number of people speaking out against evil and for good because if that number doesn't exist, these societies are destroyed, they meet their destruction because of their injustice, because of their zulm. Again, Allah starts out by telling us, don't Allah repeatedly tells us in the Quran time and time and time again, fear Allah, even to the Prophet ﷺ. Fear Allah, don't fear other human beings. That's a revolutionary message right there. And don't surrender yourself to the unjust. But Allah knows that that's a very difficult path in life. So, in order to get the moral strength to do what you're required to do, pray, not, in, pray in day and night. In other words, have a close relationship with Allah. Have Allah inspire your strength. And persist in patience. Sub. If it was an easy path, you wouldn't need sabr, you wouldn't need patience. 
And then Allah reminds us, societies that thrive are societies that have a critical mass of people that aspire to establish and work hard to establish justice. Because Allah doesn't destroy a people except for their injustice. Put it bluntly, unjust societies are doomed and just societies will thrive. It's a beautiful, systematic, earth-shattering discourse from our Lord and Maker telling us what the path of Tawheed is. This is exactly why Islam was revolutionary and why every prophet that came with Islam Ibrahim from Nuh to Ibrahim to Musa to Isa Every prophet came with a revolutionary message. Fear Allah, don't fear anyone else but Allah. And you are responsible for justice in your society. If you, if there's a critical mass of people that work against corruption and oppression, Allah will help you. And these societies will thrive. But in the absence of this critical mass, these societies are doomed. Doomed by their own injustice, by their own oppression. This is precisely why, think about this. We know the Prophet tells us that there are seven categories of people that Allah will take special care of in the hereafter. That Allah will, will cast the divine shadow upon them. It's a, it's a metaphor to will be in the special care of Allah. Among the seven is someone who spoke truth before an unjust ruler. The Prophet teaches us that the greatest jihad is is to say a word of truth before an unjust ruler. Now think about this. In the old days, what that meant is that you travel, you get an audience with the ruler, you stand before the ruler, you say a word of truth against this oppressive ruler, and then this ruler will jail you or kill you. And that was titled the, the greatest jihad. And a special category of people that Allah will care for in the hereafter in a very special status. But what does that mean? Why would it matter so much that someone would gain an audience before a ruler just to say to the unjust, you're unjust? Before I answer that, Keep in mind that in our day and age, it is pedantic to think that what the Prophet was talking about is that you take a plane, drive a car, somehow gain access to an unjust ruler, and tell them whatever you tell them in, in their face. In our day and age, the way you practice the greatest jihad 
It's hell. It's through modern means of speaking to unjust rulers. The way you practice the greatest jihad is through social media, is through print, is through publications, is all the modern mechanisms that human beings with Allah's aid have created for discourse. But why does it matter? It matters lest Muslims slump back in a in a state of moral and ethical lethargy. If no one is willing to speak for the truth and pay the price for the truth, you don't have narratives of bravery and struggle. And when you don't have narratives of bravery and struggle, eventually People lose, people lose sight of the importance of high principles. And if people lose sight of the importance of high principles, they eventually forget what Sharia law is about. Eventually, they think that the message that Allah sent to Nuh and Ibrahim and Musa and Isa and Muhammad is a message that has to do with ritualistic practice. Do your salah, do your psalm, do your dhikr. They forget that if that was the case, Islam would have never had the influence it has had on the world that we live in today. Look, we Muslims who live in the United States, you find so many sons and daughters of Jewish families, their pride and joy is that they traveled to Israel. Some of them have served in the Israeli army. Some of them have worked on a kibbutz. Some of them have went and helped Israeli settlers steal Palestinian lands. This is a mission, a moral mission for them. Unfortunately, it's an oppressive moral mission because they are destroying an indigenous people but nevertheless, it's the mission. You meet Mormons. So many children of Mormons will tell you how they travel to Brazil, they travel to Venezuela to, to work and spread the Mormon religion. You meet Protestants. Every other church has some evangelical program some program by which the youth travel to Africa or travel to China or travel to Haiti or travel I don't know where else to spread, to do missionary work. And they tell you about it and they're very proud. Where are Muslims from all of that? We Muslims our greatest organizations are even ashamed to engage or admit engaging in anything even coming close to missionary work. All we want as Muslims is please, please just accept us as fellow human beings. In other words, simply a meek, weak, all we want is to be able to do our Salah, fast our Ramadan, go to eat prayers, and that you allow us to do that. And as a result, I read recently a study that by the third generation, 
by the third generations, whether immigrant Muslims or African American Muslims, by the third generation, Islam for the vast majority of cases is lost. So if I am a Muslim, perhaps I can raise my child to be a Muslim. But a very high percentage, so in the 90s, in the 90s, my grandchild, this child of my child, will not be a Muslim. Why? Because we don't understand what our shara is about. So uh, we can't offer our children something to get excited about. Let me take it from another way. One of the biggest disasters is that for centuries now, since colonialism, there is a consistent attempt to define the appropriate space for Islam. So Muslims, for the past couple of centuries, developed particular themes, particular themes, themes about hijab, themes about salah, themes about uh, 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 not envying other human beings, particular themes that they have been talking about again and again for a couple of hundred years. You can go to an Islamic center, you can go to a khutbah, and if you've been a Muslim long enough, you can merely predict what they're going to say. It is contrary to human nature, people. You can't talk about the same ideas in the same order, with the same logic, and with the same language for a couple of hundred years and not lose people. Human beings, Allah created us beings that have an innate sense of what is just and what is unjust. An innate sense for human dignity and, and relevance innate sense for creative and imaginative energy. And then if every Islamic discourse doesn't engage your creative energy, doesn't engage your imaginative energy, doesn't engage your innate sense of justice, doesn't engage your innate sense of dignity, doesn't engage anything but the same themes with the same language that Muslims have been going on about for the past couple of hundred years, what happens? People just say, eh, there's nothing to offer here. And by the time, especially for Muslims in the West, by the time the third generation comes about, they're no longer Muslim. And you can't blame them. Because they see a life that is nuanced and complex and they find Islamic discourse static and frozen. This is a very serious issue, people. A very serious issue. Now, and this is something that we can talk about so much more. But for the interest of time, of course, I can't. Who has the primary responsibility to think about Shara and to talk about Shara in a way that presents moral leadership to Muslims and to humanity. 
obviously, it is those who study the Shara most closely. In our modern terminology, the fuqaha, the scholars. What happens when your scholars lack a moral vision? What happens when your scholars are behind the times because they read books that were written in the medieval age and they have very little knowledge of the modern world? What happens when your scholars say nothing new because they only do taqlid, taqlid, they imitate? What happens when your scholars are moral cowards? They don't practice the greatest jihad. They don't stand before an unjust ruler and say you're unjust just to make a point and be an example unto others. What happens when your scholars are cowards? The entire ummah becomes exactly like them. If your scholars are cowards, you will be cowards. And you will invariably and inevitably lose your children. Because cowards don't lead the world. Cowards don't lead the world. People who lack imagination and creativity and daring don't lead the world. They are, they are subjugated by the world. Among the biggest disasters inflicted upon modern Islam, the Orientalist dogma, because it was invented by an Orientalist French scholar, and then Muslims just embraced it because Muslims just imitate whatever is given to them. Is that idea of political Islam? If what is intended by political Islam that scholars should not rule in Allah's name, I completely agree that this is valid and important. Scholars should never rule in Allah's name. For so many reasons. But if what is meant by political Islam, and sadly that is what is happening, is that scholars should not speak up against injustice, then scholars have lost the reason, the very reason to be for the existence. If you can't offer moral leadership and moral vision and moral progress, then what is that you should you should just shut up and stay home. Because you have no role. If you claim to be a scholar in Shar Allah, if your position is silence before injustice then it's as if you're saying, yes, I am a scholar, but I am too much of a coward to practice the greatest jihad. Well, you know what? If you position yourself as a scholar, it is my right as a lay person to see you aspire to practice the greatest jihad and not be among those who surrender to the unjust. And if you don't practice the greatest jihad that the Prophet ﷺ taught us about, then you do not deserve my respect, my reverence. Because while as a lay person, Allah might tell me, well, you know, you were busy raising your children, but you as a scholar, you have no excuse. During the time of the Prophet ﷺ, there were those who went out with the Prophet ﷺ and Mujahidun, those who went out to confront the enemy. And there were also a Qa'idun, 
There were also those who stayed behind and said, it's too hot. We can't fight in, in, in such a hot atmosphere. There were those who, who said, شَغَلَتْنَا أَمْوَالُنَا وَأَهْلِينَا Those who said, well, we, were, we, we have too much business and we can't, we, we can't join your profit. There were all types of excuses. And go back to the Qur'an and see what the Qur'an says about those who failed in their obligation towards the Prophet ﷺ. If scholars become among the Qa'idun, if scholars become among those who just stay behind and prefer al-hayat al-dunya, they prefer earthly achievements and pleasures. And they are, instead of fearing Allah, they fear the unjust. And they don't set a moral example in the greatest jihad by just speaking the truth. And again, in our day and age, what is demanded of them is to use modern means of speaking the truth. Then don't believe them when they tell you they are scholars. Put them in the garbage can. Because you don't provide moral leadership and you don't provide a moral example to be followed. You're a coward. And a coward cannot lead an ummah. Don't let anyone tell you that if you care about justice, then that is political Islam. Again, if what we're talking about is a bunch of people that want to rule in Allah's name, then no. For many reasons. But the main function of a Sharia expert, or someone who claims to be a Sharia expert, is to be a moral example unto others, to be a moral vision, to represent moral progress. And if they do not, if they themselves, through their own conduct, exhibit the, all the symptoms of fearing human beings over fearing Allah. In other words, they're cowards. Then immediately, they are a bad example. They are among those who those who have surrendered to injustice and now are part of the formula that will lead to the destruction of the nation by, of, by its own injustice. It is very important. This is a critical khutbah. The primary role of a scholar the main role of a scholar is not to tell you how to do your salah correctly or what are the rules of psalm or what are the rules for maita or what are the rules for zakah. In our modern age, you can look most of that up on the net. The main, the main role of a scholar is to be a leader an example for how a human being can fear Allah and no one else. How a human being can establish justice through fearing Allah and no one else. In other words, the role of scholars is to testify, testify against the oppressor in favor of the oppressed against injustice, in favor of justice, against shirk, associating partners with Allah, in favor of tawheed, 
and to practice the greatest jihad. Jihad, kalimatul haq, the word of truth. The jihad of speaking the truth. If they are too cowardly to do that, then they should stay home. And you should not listen to any of them. This is our sharia. This is our path. This was the path that was decreed to Nuh and Ibrahim and Musa and Isa and Muhammad. This was the path. بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين وسبحان الله العلي العظيم الصلاة والسلام على محمد وعلى آله وأصحابه وانتبعوا بإحسان إلى يوم الدين I am sorry to come back to this example but I come to back to it and you will see why because of very important point We've talked about a while ago a video that was leaked to Hamza Yusuf mocking the Syrian revolution and saying that the, the weak hadith that we talked about, whoever insults a ruler, Allah insults him, and Ahana Sultan, Ahana Allah. A weak hadith. And also a, a, a remarkable lack of knowledge in Sharia that the hadith, this hadith is talking about, or hadith similar to that, that talk about Sultan the Sultan is Allah's shadow, that it's talking about the just ruler, not just any ruler, but that just ruler. Anyway, the reason I bring it up again though is because of a very alarming phenomenon. As all of you know, this video appeared, and as soon as it ap appeared, there were people taking it down. Every time someone would put it up, it would be taken down. And I have friends that said that the orders that for taking it down came, some said that they're Hamza Yusuf students, others said that they're the students of the, the Emirat, played a critical role in always taking that video down and so on. Recently I was looking at Arab social media and lo and behold I find Egyptian social media, that is, one of the sites that is, has millions of followers all over the Middle East, someone called Ahmad al-Bihiri, a respectable man, man with a good intellect, discussing the views of Hamza Yusuf because of the influence of his Sheikh bin Bayya and the influence of the Emirat and of course he, he is, is condemning the type of things that Hamza Yusuf said in this video. But what concerns me is the moral cowardice. That is what concerns me much more than what was said. People send me emails and tell me, we learned in such and such Islamic institute, we learned in such and such Muslim school, this hadith about al-amr that you have to obey whoever the ruler is, to the extent that I get emails telling me that they are taught in Islamic institutions in the United States that it is haram it is haram to even protest the Muslim ban by Trump and they are taught that the Muslim ban wasn't really about a Muslim ban it was about immigration although if you read the Supreme Court's decision the Supreme Court readily admits that this was a deeply Islamophobic act. 
because of everything that the Trump administration said during the ban. So what is my point here? My point is there is a clear indication, unmistakable indication, that thanks to funding by the Emirat and Saudi, our children are taught behind the scenes, behind closed doors, that you should not care about justice and that you should simply obey a ruler even if this ruler is unjust and that you should not have, be politically active even if it's against something like the Muslim ban. So Syrian refugees come to this country who takes care of Syrian refugees and this is mostly before the ban that now has destroyed it's Christian families, churches that care of Muslims are not at all involved in caring for refugee work. And then I find out that behind closed doors, the Muslims are taught, well, you know, they're suffering. They deserve to suffer because they, they, they rebelled against their sultan. So, Ya Allah! What concerns me here is that very act of taking down the video after it was posted. Why? Because it tells you that it's not that Hamza Yusuf changed his ideas. He, he said what he said in a, in a, a Turkey in, in a election in Turkey. It's not that Hamza Yusuf changes ideas. He still teaches the same material to his students, but behind closed doors. And this is exactly the pedagogy and methodology that both the Emirat, which is funding most of that, including funding Hamza Yusuf and Bin Bayi and so on, and a lot of the Muslim institutions in America, is that teach, teach quietism and political cowardliness and lack of moral vision, but behind closed doors. So you can influence the minds of the young without having to answer to the corruption of the doctrines that you are teaching. A sheikh, a scholar, must be brave. And if you say something, you must know what you're saying and stand to defend it. To say it and then have it be taken down so you can still say it in private and in secret is moral cowardice. It is a clear example of exactly what's wrong with our institutions. Let me be very blunt. Any scholar that puts in his pockets or, or her pockets Emirati money, Saudi money, Egyptian money, even American money, American government money is not worthy of the name scholar. Any scholar who tells you, no, I teach something but in secret so no one can challenge me is not a scholar. I heard Hamza Yusuf's apology. It, it's not an apology at all. And I know that he still teaches the same nonsense. People this is the fate of our Islam. It is up to you. If you want to teach your religion that Islam is about saving your hind from hellfire by dhikr and salah and psalm and that's it, okay, fine, go for it. But I will tell you your children or the children of your children will not be Muslim because there is nothing that you have to offer them. Go for it. I have done everything that I can. If you want to still consider moral cowards as your scholars, as, as your examples in life, there is nothing that I can do. Go for it. But understand that the state that Muslims are in around the world 
Christianity is spreading and it has it's spreading like like wildfire in Asia and Africa. Even the Mormon religion has spread in South America and, and Africa and Asia. Look at how Jews are raised with a cause and a purpose, even if it means stealing the lands of an indigenous people. Our children are not raised with any moral version, vision or purpose. And you're not going to get your children excited about a faith that is simply about dhikr and salah and psalm because you, you're not even telling them why. How does it make any difference in the universe? And you are telling them that you can, because innately, intuitively, they know who's a coward and who's not. You're not going to be able to lie to them. No matter how many times you tell them to respect a coward, they're not going to, even if they smile and say, yes, mama, yes, baba, but they're not going to respect a coward. And the price is Islam. And you have that to answer to before Allah in the final day. أقول قولي هذا واستغفر الله لي ولكم اللهم أفو عنا وارحمنا واغفر لنا وادنا لأقرب من هذا رشد يا علي عظيم Allah guide us to the right path and give us the strength to persist in the right path. Allah give us the strength to understand Islam as it is and to follow your shara. Ya Allah, Ya Ali, Ya Azim, wa salli wa sallim wa barik ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi wa akrusu.